What London Can Be is brought to you by London Community Foundation, an organization dedicated to improving communities across London and Middlesex County. Welcome to What London Can Be, the podcast where we navigate our shifting world, shine a light on the issues our city is facing, and explore the innovative Made in London solutions to critical challenges in our community. I'm Diane Silva, Director of Philanthropy at London Community Foundation. Today I'll be speaking with Sheikh Arich Anwar, Interim Imam and Islamic Education Coordinator at the London Muslim Mosque. Arich is an educator, advocate, and a pillar of his community, and I'm really excited for this opportunity to learn more from him. Hi, Arich. How are you? I'm do- doing good. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. And thank you for being on our show today. Um, so for a lot of these listeners, they don't know who you are. So can you please tell us a bit about yourself, your background, your education, and you know, or where you grew up? Sure. Uh, so I am currently here in London as the interim imam and the uh, Islamic education coordinator for the uh, London Muslim Mosque. The mosque is a, a big institution. It has uh, the mosque itself and it has a full-time uh, private day school as well. So I serve in both capacities. I uh, was born in Karachi, Pakistan. That is uh, many thousands of miles away <laughs> in South Asia. And uh, I, I, I spent uh, my childhood there. Then we immigrated to Canada, to Toronto, uh, more precisely Mississauga uh, in, the, in the late 90s. Uh, I grew up in the Mississauga area, went to high school there. Um, then I went on to study computer science at Waterloo. Uh, I studied there. I graduated. I worked in tech for a little bit. Uh, I then uh, had a bit of a change for heart and decided to go and uh, study, uh, you know, Islamic education formally. Uh, I've always had a bit of an informal exposure to it, but formal education for, uh, you know, you call it clergy training, so to say. Uh, and that process for for particularly in Islam starts with uh, learning. Arabic and uh, and getting acquainted with the Quran. Why Arabic? Because Arabic is the 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 language of the text, the scripture. Uh, just like you know, for example, somebody studying to be a, a church father or a pastor, they have to study some Latin to have access to the uh, some of the original texts. So uh, my journey started there, learning Arabic, uh, getting acquainted with the uh, the scripture, the Quran. And I completed a degree uh, from a university in Malaysia uh, as I was going through that process. It's called Al-Madina International University. I did it through correspondence. I didn't have to be there, even though I had, you know, uh, you know, acceptance to the university in person as well. But they were kind enough to accommodate for, for me. I also, as I was doing that, uh, pursued a bachelor's of education from the University of Toronto. Um, that's the St. George campus downtown. Uh, and uh, the um, combination of that I, allowed me to serve some different roles. I, I, I worked for a company in America uh, that was uh, at the forefront of creating uh, curriculums for uh, Arabic education for Islamic schools across the world. It's a very specific, very niche product. Uh, but it was a really big organization back in like the 2014, 2015 time in America. So I worked with, for them for a little bit. We created some curriculums that were implemented across 
uh, parts of uh, Southern America, parts of you know Malaysia. Uh, then I moved on from that and uh, started serving more locally in Toronto first uh, in a mosque, and then uh, my journey brought me here finally to to London. Wow, fascinating! It's a, it's a long long road. <laughs> yeah, road. I was going to say like from coming all the way from Karachi, Pakistan mm. to Canada, landing in Mississauga mm. um, and how holding this wide range of education, which I do want to get into. But what I would love to know, too, before I get into this is mm. um, what was it like coming from Karachi, Pakistan and coming to Canada and more specifically the GTA? Mm. What was that like for your family mm. and as a as a newcomer? Well, uh, immigrants have uh, like different experiences, depends on where they came from and depends on the circumstances they come in, right? So my father came in as like a skilled immigrant, like he was a scientist in Pakistan. So he came in as like, a you know, on that basis, not as a refugee or something else. Uh, and uh, And we had family here who had immigrated before us. Uh, my aunt, two aunts and you know cousins were all here. Some of them were actually here for many, many years. They were born here. They were older than me by about 10 years. So we had a lot of family here before we came uh, and more came after we came here. But for us specifically, like I went to, so Mississauga was a very, uh, it's still a very diverse area. Uh, at that time, it was uh, very, uh, certain areas of Mississauga were very, let's call it like ethnic, you know, immigrants will come and kind of just live there because, you know, you have other people who are immigrants living in your area. It's a little easier. Uh, so we lived in an area like that. Uh, you know, it was Bloor and, 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 and uh, Dixie area for those who know, who know. <laughs> and, uh, and then that school I went to, it was actually kind of like an interesting experience because I think most of the kids were immigrants from Eastern Europe, from parts of China, Southeast Asia, from South Asia. Uh, so we kind of all just, you know, like felt for each other, even if like, you know, we didn't all speak the same language, you know, like someone from my, one of my best friends was from Romania, but I think what bonded, what we bonded was that neither of us could speak English that well. Right. So it was kind of that school, but the school had a really good culture of education, like a really, really good culture of education. Uh, a lot of high achievers were in our class and uh, that was a good thing. Like that's the kind of like support system you need. And when you come into, you know, a new setting, you don't want to be just, you know, you just want, you don't want to just be like uh, another person just standing on the side. You want to get into the, uh, let's say like on a track to achievement, so to say. Right. And I was really glad that that school provided that, uh, that, that, um, sp that, that space for me, that um, it was Glen Forest high school, Glen Forest secondary school. It was, uh, that's where a lot of that was from and coming in as an immigrant to that area, it was easy to kind of get integrated um, with family around also was helpful because, you know, you can always rely on them. Uh, so for me, it was not too bad to get, settled in and i was young too so i wasn't that old i was you know in my i was 13 i think so it was not wasn't too bad um but it could have been worse if you come to come to an area where you don't know anybody there's no people around you who uh, are from a similar background 
it could be difficult for sure. Yes, I would totally agree. And you are fortunate with the way you were describing Mississauga and specifically mm-hmm. the area where you were, where you you were with people that had a lot of that shared experience like yours, even though they were from different countries, they were all starting kind of from the same place. And it it sounded like too, with your family already being established, it also helped you thrive. So that that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, Now going to your education, um, I'm blown away by it. And Mm -hmm. uh, what took you from computer science education to Islamic sciences? And can you explain what, that really means and what it entails. Mm. Sure. Uh, it wasn't like a well thought out process. Let me put it that way. It wasn't like a grand plan and then kind of followed it. It was a lot of it was just, uh, you know, like read and react, so to say, right? Like you do something and then you see what options are in front of you and then you take the best option from there uh, or kind of minimizing the risk that you're taking. Uh, so that kind of was my approach. I, uh, computer science for me was, uh, you know, it came a little naturally because my dad, as I mentioned, he was a scientist, but also he was a programmer. My aunt was a programmer. My cousin was a programmer. So we're all kind of in that, you know, family wise, a family of programmers. So it was easy for me to go there. Uh, I couldn't actually, um, remember things from biology. So being a doctor was like out of the picture for me. (laughs) Um, so that was how I ended up there. And I liked it. It was nice. But uh, the the good fortune I had was that my dad had a very good career as soon as he got settled within a year or two. And I had almost no liabilities. I, I went to Waterloo. Waterloo has a co-op program. So I paid through my education through my co-op program. I didn't have to have any OSAP or anything. Uh, so when you have no liabilities and you're you know young, you can make choices like you can choose to do what you want you're not bound to a certain thing or a or tied to a certain career because you have to pay off your osap or you have to pay certain bills i had a lot of freedom in that regard so that's kind of what enabled me to uh, you know think about this and, uh, and and do this and as i started doing it i realized that this is something i enjoyed more than being in computer science and just writing code I think I enjoyed more interacting with people and, uh, you know, explaining things to people and trying to make sense of things that I wish, like when I was growing up, someone would have like explained it in that way to me. So I enjoyed that process more. And that's slowly why I drifted away from, uh, from tech and then into, into Islamic education. That makes sense because you mm-hmm. had the opportunity to learn about yourself and where you were leaning more towards you had that space to be creative and experiment so that's that's interesting mm. so now jumping onto the london muslim mosque um from what i understand it's been around for a long time and i don't think a lot of people really understand the history about it um can you share the history about specifically the london uh muslim mosque here in london sure so the London Muslim Mosque is actually the oldest mosque in Ontario. It was established in 1964. Uh, in fact, right there is a picture of the first like uh, artist uh, visualization of it on the on the wall here. The first time they made the uh, what is it called like the 
artist representation of like a, of a sketch, right? Rendering, right? That's right. So yeah. that that first one is actually right on the wall here, just to you know give a bit more of a historical feel uh, to this. So it's the first mosque in Ontario, uh, 1964. Uh, it is the uh, oldest operational mosque in Canada. There was one in Edmonton that came before, but that particular space where that mosque operated from, that no longer is the area of the mosque. It was too small or too crowded or something. So the city moved them from that area to their current place. Um, so that original mosque is no longer a mosque. So that makes us de facto like the longest operational mosque in the same place in Canada. So this is a really historical uh, historical place uh, for, for, for those reasons. Yeah. And that, um, like, I remember growing up in the city and always seeing the mosque, right. The one mm. along um, Oxford street. And I've, and Oxford, I've seen yeah. the mm. physical changes to the structure and uh, I always found it a beautiful building, beautiful. Um, mm. So that's nice to hear that it has a lot of roots here planted uh, in our community. Um mm-hmm. So we're talking about uh, the London Muslim Mosque and uh, and we're talking specifically with you, the imam, the current interim imam there. And are there any myths or misunderstandings you think need clarification regarding Islam? Well, uh, I think there are quite a few, um, quite a few narratives that are out there. Uh, and those narratives are uh, just that they're assumed to be factual by by people and then if a person uh, a muslim person uh has a character flaw that narrative is projected on them see ah see that's why so for example there's a narrative that uh you know inherently uh, muslims are more violent than other other faith traditions uh which is an unfounded claim you can actually make the case that uh if you were to measure historically uh, violence, you know, there's actually no, there's no like coefficient of measuring it, so to say, right? Because it varies so much by people and time. And then, then if you look at scripturally, like in the scripture, uh, anytime violence is mentioned, it is qualified in the context of a battle as an army, like an instruction to an army, not an instruction to an individual, so to say. So those things are quite like easy to refute. There, I find them actually quite lazy when someone makes that kind of claim. But unfortunately, it's assumed to be almost factual, right? Like you watch like uh, TV shows like Twenty Four, for example, right? Like I mean, like the always the Muslim guy, the guy who's praying is in jail and he's trying to like blow things up or something. Uh, and that's the narrative that's out there. And it's a really like disturbing narrative. And I used to watch that stuff. It would really anger me because, you know, I just couldn't like accept it. I couldn't accept it um, because that's not how who we are. Right. But that's projected. So that's number one. Now, if somebody like a Muslim kid's a little violent in school, right. Or they have like these tendencies of, you know, they're just, you know, rowdier, right? Now that is now their burden extra than somebody else, that they're carrying that extra burden. Oh, you know, see, he's from a Muslim family. So that's one, you know, thing. The other problem also is that there is a stigma attached to uh, 
Sharia law, right? Uh, I was talking to a friend. He is actually a, uh, he's, he has a company, he has a, he's a mortgage broker. And Islamically, there's certain rules that we follow uh, for our spirituality and rituals, but also like for our practices, just day-to-day practices. Like we've, we consider the religion to be uh, all-encompassing, right? And that includes how we buy and sell and trade and, uh, and all that, right? So he's establishing in, through his brokerage like a product that is compliant with our belief system uh, and our ethics, and also it's within the you know common law. It fits it fits uh, neatly amongst uh, as, as a product, right? And he has some success with the company in Toronto. They have like a hundred twenty five million dollar portfolio that they're working with. So it's, it's not not huge, but nothing not to sneeze, sneeze at either. But he was telling me that that organization that he's partnering with, they have a new board, and they are. Like their language they're using is like the language of uh, like somebody from the KKK, for example, about the Sharia law, right? As if it's like completely like barbaric and whatnot, right? Really? So it's a very like, and he's like, I'm, we're, we're professionals. I'm bringing you a hundred plus million dollar, hundred million uh, dollar portfolio more than that. And this is the kind of like tone you bring that this is, uh, you know, you're talking about Sharia law like you're a uh, like a bully in the playground, like somebody who's so uneducated. So it that Islamophobia, this fear of like what this religion is, it it's in all spheres, and it's not just like restricted to one thing or the other. So that's another thing, as an unfortunate burden that many uh, Muslims have to carry around. Again, I don't want to just point to like shows, but really they're the convenient. Thing to point to when you constantly see in TV shows that the Muslim guy is the uh, the violent, non-rational guy. The uh, the religion he's following is making him do this. You're gonna accept that as reality. Um, so, for those that are unfamiliar with Islam, can you give us a brief rundown of what are the core tenets of Islam? Sure. So, what we believe uh, as as Muslims is that the religion of Islam is uh, is the is the last uh, iteration of the Abrahamic faith. It's the last version of it, the final version of it. We believe that uh, only one God is worthy of worship. There is no other deity that can be worshipped. No act of worship can be directed towards any human or any deity. Only God alone is worthy of worship. And this God is the one who is the Abrahamic God, the one who is the supreme, uh, inexhaustible power, the one who has brought everything into existence, that God is the one who is only worthy of worship. In Arabic, that is Allah. Uh, so, and by the way, even Arab Christians, they in uh, the New Testament, if you read it in Arabic, it has the word Allah in it. The same thing because they refer to God as Allah in Arabic. Uh, so that is um, that's the core peace the oneness of worship of god alone the monotheism uh and that is has has uh effects on the way we uh, ex- uh the way we live our lives where for example uh i don't have a barrier between me and god i have every single individual has equal access to god we are all god's creation 
uh, all descendants from Adam, all, you know, essentially the same. What makes us better or worse is our piety, not the, the skin of our color. Uh, sorry, not the color of our skin or the place that we come from. What makes us good is our commitment to our, uh, our, our Lord and devotion to him. Now, that's that. We believe that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is the last messenger of God. He's uh, like the final brick in the wall of messengers. If you want to imagine a wall that has bricks and each brick represents a prophet, he's the last one. Uh, and he's the one who brings the same message as all of them before. And morality is achieved by following the prophets. Like they are the most moral of all people. Uh, so it, what we believe in Muslims is that those two tenets of belief, worshiping God alone and uh, accepting that the Prophet Muhammad is the last prophet, then that leads to, uh, that affects uh, all of your life in all ways. Like you're trying to be the most, you were trying to make the most moral choices in all aspects. When it's how we speak, what you say, how you engage with other people, how uh, you spend your time personally, like you, every choice you make has a moral consequence. And our goal in life is to maximize our morality, to attain salvation in the next life, to live happily and blissfully in this world, and also to attain salvation in the next life. That's like the core tenets of it. There's rituals like prayer and fasting. There's also uh, spiritual aspects like remembrance of God. There is uh, things such as uh, just day-to-day -day things that everybody does, engage in business. But everything that's done has to be done in the most moral, more, most ethical way as part of the faith. It really strong core values, right? To, to live within the community. Yeah. That's, that's beautifully said. And thank you for sharing that. So I'm interested to know, what is it like for Muslims living in mm. London, Ontario? I'd be, I, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on this. And, um, and even in your work, yeah. Uh, maybe you, if you could share if there's challenges or what what are the common themes that you're seeing? Sure. So London is a very really interesting town because we have a very uh, old uh, Muslim population. Like it's not a, a new Muslim community. Uh, 1964 is when they had the first mosque. Quite a few people, their grandfathers came to Canada, not just like their fathers or themselves, their grandfathers came to Canada and they came settled in London. Uh, you know, they didn't go to Toronto or something, they settled here. Um, so it's a unique thing. It's, it's a, it, this is like an indigenous Muslim population of London. You can call it that because they've been here for a couple of generations now. Um, I, I find that contrast between the GTA, right? Because the GTA, a lot of the popula population, they're immigrants. They came and now they're kind of settling their they're, they're setting up themselves here and you know putting their roots in that area but in london you already have that obviously there's newcomers uh, and people coming in all the time and with the syrian refugee crisis we have a lot of people come from the levant area to to london um to you know seek that sense of community that they have lost um so but fundamentally the community is very established if, and they're part of the fabric of society in London. So I really like that. I really appreciate that. And that's how we, uh, that's how, you know, that's what, that's what we envision wherever we live, right? As human beings, you're part and parcel of the fabric of society, not like an outsider. 
just living in a place. Um, when it comes to Muslims in London, also there is the aspect of, uh, as I mentioned, the uh, newcomers, excuse me, the newcomers uh, have many challenges. They're coming with a little, quite a bit of trauma. Uh, they're trying to, you know, restart their lives. Uh, and, and they need a whole host of uh, programs that support them. The Muslims that are, let's say, like the indigenous Muslims in London who've been here for many years or at least a couple of generations, they have different challenges. They want to be engaged, you know, in a more academic, intellectual way. They want that intellectual engagement with Islam, not just some uh, basic level rituals. They want to understand what's going on. They want to have deeper conversations about the meaning of their identity and how that ties into their heritage and their current reality as Canadians, right? Whereas these new Muslims or the newcomers, excuse me, from uh, the Levant area, they're just trying to survive. They're just trying to restart their lives. Uh, for them, it's a whole different set of issues and a whole different set of problems that, you know, we have to work to address. So you can almost see there's like a duality, uh, almost like two different sets of people. You're two different like groups of people entirely that you have to address, but they're all together in one congregation. That's uh, like a snapshot of what it's like here in London right now. Interesting. So um, now I'm going to go to a sensitive, more sensitive um, question, at least I think it is sensitive. Um, sure. I, you know, I've seen headlines also in our local media where uh, people of the Muslim community have been targeted unfairly uh, with, you know, racism acts uh, done against them. And have you had any first or secondhand experience with Islamophobia here in our community, if you could, if you're comfortable to share this? Sure. I mean, I personally haven't had any like Islamophobic experiences or my wife hasn't had it either. Uh, we're very fortunate uh, in that regard. Um, so, but I, I the, see there, there is, there's a rare occurrence of somebody doing something just outrageous, right? There, but it's rare. It's not common. Okay. There was an individual whose family was, harassed uh, and physically abused. And this individual was, you know, like a respected member of the community, but a newcomer uh, had difficulty defending themselves. So, you know, the one who was doing this to them just took advantage of that. And just, you know, the whole burden that the whole like narrative that they hear, they just burden this one man and his wife with it. Uh, and it was really hurtful for them. Like they were really, you know, very, very sorrowful after this experience. Uh, so I've seen that, but those are rare. I would say those are rare. Those are not like commonplace occurrences. It's not like every day someone is abusing a person in the street. Uh, you know, that is there, but there's, there's these like microaggressions that everybody faces. Like, a, you know, like a, an unapproving look. Right, then when a person comes in who's wearing hijab, right? It's like, yeah, you're here, but we really don't approve you of being here in that appearance. Uh, the um, if someone is speaking in their, you know, ancestral language, for example, whether that's Arabic or any other language, there's like a like a disapproval of it. Whereas, for example, if someone was speaking uh, maybe French or 
you know, Italian, something a bit more considered exotic. Uh, no one would bat an eye. Like they were like, oh, this is interesting. This guy, oh, you're speaking Italian. Where are you from? How did you come here? There's a curiosity almost. Whereas there's a disapproval for say something like Arabic or Urdu. You see, there is, these are these little microaggressions that people feel. And I hope that those are just like temporary growing pains of a community. Totally. Sorry, keep going. And I don't want to interrupt you. You you got me uh, excited I, I, here. I, Go ahead. No, and I was just saying, like, I hope because the major, you know, instances of people getting abused are far and few, uh, to my knowledge. That's a good sign, right? And that's hope that these kind of small things that take place, these passive aggressive statements uh, or gestures over time will also just like, just dissipate away, right? It won't remain so prominent. People won't have to uh, accept them as normal, right? I, that's what my hope is with, 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 the, with, our, with, our, with our city here. So, and I am aware of that, like those microaggressions. You're right. It's mm. not like it's a constant chronic thing that's mm. um, like these attacks happening to your people. But mm. uh, I am aware of those microaggressions that you're talking about. So what can people here in our community, what can the average person do, like either collectively or individually do to stop those microaggressions from occurring or have a better appreciation um, for the Muslim community, Islamic community? What, what is, what's your advice? What do you think? I think, sure, absolutely. I think the first thing is that like, if you look at anything you don't know, you're kind of apprehensive about, right? If you don't know something, you're apprehensive about it. Uh, but when you are, when you uh, know someone you're, you know, you're like, they're just like us. There's no, you know, sure. There's differences, obviously, but that fear, that, uh, that apprehension goes away. So let's try, even though right now there's COVID, let's try to come together in a way, right? Let's, uh, get to know your Muslim neighbor, get to know, like be friends with the person who's in your, uh, area who you might look at it and be like, this is a, outsider, right? Uh, you'll be surprised, right? You'll be surprised at what you find in that interaction. Uh, it, it's something like um, uh, when I first came to Canada, one of the things I noticed uh, was that every, everybody was uh, quite friendly, right? I don't know about Misaga now, but back in the day, Misaga was quite friendly. <laughs> um, you know, you would hold open the door for the person and you say, thank you, say, you know, uh, all, all these things. I, I lived in America for a little bit for work purposes and America is not like that. You know, like Dallas and all these areas, people don't do that stuff. I was the guy saying, thank you and hoping, holding the door open and people gave me like random looks like, why is he doing this? Uh, so that part is like, I think part and parcel of our Canadian culture, right? And let's extend that to people who are maybe different than us. Maybe you don't know them because that allows you to get to know them and they to get to know you. And when that happens, I think uh, only good stuff can come from that. 
I would agree. And, you know, it's funny at the end of the day, we're all people, right? We all Mm. care about the same things. We care about each other. We care about the places where we live. We want to do well. And I agree with you. It's, it's having just understanding, just taking the time to learn. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, can non-Muslims attend mosque services? Absolutely. So um, the mosque is open for all people. Uh, You know, the, 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 there is uh, the mosque is slightly different than say like a church a church service is uh, you know you can go and sit on a bench and just attend the whole service because everybody else is doing the same thing as an example right whereas the mosque prayer service requires that there's certain movements of prayer okay now a you know for example a, after the prayer starts there is you know people are standing then people are bowing then people are uh, prostrating okay that's the way the prayer uh is is performed uh so for a non-muslim to come in they should realize that this is what people will be doing they're not ignoring you right that's just the way they're praying now you're welcome to join in that but that might be challenging because this is something that is not normal right not used to those movements um so just understand that that there is going to be it's going to be different than like a church service not everyone's going to be sitting on the bench and just listening people will be doing a certain set of movements that uh you know it will seem like they're ignoring you right that's one thing to understand when you come to the mosque but once you're there right once you're here you're like in our in our mosque here we have a area in the back uh, where you know our guests can have a seat and they can sit and observe. Okay, uh, it's open to everybody to come by and visit. With COVID now, we're requiring registrations and whatnot. But pre-COVID, we would have a lot of people come and just experience what it's like to watch people pray, right? And uh, that it's, it's actually a really beautiful thing to have people from around the community come in and and uh, and see what it's like firsthand. I think so too. That's really nice and encouraging Mm -hmm. to know that anyone can participate and observe and learn, right? Mm -hmm. So that's very Mm -hmm. nice to know. Thank you. And you did touch on COVID. So Mm -hmm. what were the impacts of the pandemic on the Muslim community here in London? The pandemic has been hard for everyone, I think, without exception, right? Like, unless you are like a big time investor and you bought a lot of stock at like the market crash in March and you made out really well, <laughs> the rest of us <laughs> didn't make out so well. Uh, so uh, it's been hard for everybody. It's been hard for the Muslim community as well. It's been hard for us on a couple of levels specifically. Number one is we're unable to, uh, we missed out on Ramadan last year. Ramadan was around uh, May and June, right? Last year, it's, a, it's a, Ramadan is a lunar month, so it moves throughout the solar uh, months. Okay, uh, it, it every year it go, you know moves about by like ten or eleven days because the lunar calendar is about eleven days shorter than the the Gregorian calendar. So Ramadan last year was right in the middle of the lockdown. So we weren't able to be in the mosque. And that's actually the time where the mosques are fully occupied every single day. Like they're just packed to the brim. Uh, So that was a really difficult thing for the community to experience that Ramadan without the mosque. Uh, Number one, number two, we're still, you know, when we pray, 
you might notice if you Google like Muslims praying in a mosque or something, you will notice that everybody's standing together when they pray. Okay? This is just the way uh, we were taught to pray by, by the Prophet. Um, but because of COVID, we're standing apart uh, two meters, right? And that's a very strange feeling as, as to, to pray like that, that you're so far away from the next person. Uh, obviously by necessity and and there's no one has a choice to pray like side by side we don't give that choice to anybody but it's actually a very strange feeling so we like our spirituality has been affected by this by the lockdown by the rules after lockdowns over that you have to distance uh, and whatnot so th- those have been challenging specifically for us and how do you find like how do you keep people? Um, spirits high in that spirituality, how do you guide that? Because I can see what you're saying because there's strength when with the close proximity and now you've got the distancing thing and all these precautions, public health precautions that have been enforced on you. Um, Do you see this impacting the faith in any way or or you feel like the faith is still going to stay strong, but um, I hope you understand where I'm going. Uh, Sure. Yeah, it, it 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 is. I don't know if there's a way to measure that, right? I don't. It's it's. I think one measure of it is that, like for example, excuse me, mosque attendance is way down. Naturally, you know, people are just staying away. Also, we're restricted to thirty percent capacity, not hundred percent capacity, right? So, just one measure of it is just that there's much less people, or much fewer people in the mosque now than before, and that has a ripple effect you know when it comes to their spirituality when it comes to their commitment to the faith all that is uh undeniable right also hard is well, what's also hard is you know it, it, it's taking a toll on people's mental health which is not specific only to muslims it's specific it's just generic to everybody right that it's taking a toll on people's mental health the lockdown the stay-at-home orders they're they've been not easy to deal with um, and we see the effects of that when we, when people come to the mosque, right? Like it's, it's like they come to the mosque and like, imagine like you have a, like a beach ball, right. And you like submerge it into the, into the water and then you let it go. It just bounces away above high. It's like a spring effect. Right. Uh, so sometimes I see that people come and they've seen their friends after so long and then just. They just can't help themselves. They're like hugging. And we're like, I'm, the, I'm on the mic. Please stop, you know, hugging. Please stop shaking your heads. <laughs> right? Just people are, you know, they just want to go back to being normal. Right? So I see that in anecdotes. I don't know if there's a way to measure that. But most definitely, there is that effect. For sure. So those, those right. and, adverse effects. And I could see that. And I could see like you, that was a great analogy with the... Yeah the beach ball in the water. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I know I react that way when I see people that I haven't seen in a long time, you just want to reach out and grab them, but it's, it's, it's yeah. challenging for sure. Um, it was very interesting what you shared rich about the impacts of the pandemic, uh, from a religious perspective and your faith perspective. Um, I'm also interested to know how did your community, uh, organize yourselves in response to, um, the pandemic's challenges um, outside of the faith. Yeah. So uh, what we found also is that there's, there's people, a lot of people needed uh, a lot of support financially 
to make it through in, in this time. A lot of people lost their jobs. This is generic. Everybody has suffered a little bit financially one way or the other. And the government has been really supportive of, of people's recovery. So one of the things that we got from uh, our, our, the federal government was a grant uh, to, to, to support families that have been affected by COVID. Uh, in any way, like someone who has lost their job or temporarily lost their job, in addition to any of the benefits that they could apply for uh, with the CRA, for example, they could apply for assistance here locally, and then we could provide that for them. So we've had about, uh, I think, over $75,000 worth of uh, support that we provided over the last, um, I believe, four and a half to five months. And that includes things such as, you know, paying the rent of people who are unable to make their their ends meet, or paying, uh, you know, giving food vouchers, and uh, you know, we don't give cash. Obviously, that's something that we don't do as a charity. But we give out uh, cash-like um, uh, instruments. For example, food vouchers in certain stores. We have partnerships with them, and uh, gift cards from for Walmart, for example. So we've given between the food vouchers, the gift cards the rent and utility payments, uh, close to $75,000 worth of assistance to the community, uh, particularly those who are newcomers to the community, those who just came and settled uh, very recently or not too long ago. Uh, this is part of that grant that we got from the federal government to administer that. And that's been, like, I, I, I feel very uh, very grateful that we were able to do this. We're grateful that we had the, these funds, the government allowed us and gave us this grant. And then grateful that we could then turn around and uh, pass it all on to these people who are uh, stuck in these difficult situations where, uh, you know, perhaps they're new, so they're not able to get the benefits right away from the government. But with us, we can get that to them quickly and support them in a time, prevent them from like just sinking, right? That's amazing. I didn't know that. Um, so that's mm -hmm. really nice that the government was able to even target your community specifically and that you were able to assist your your members in a very um, positive way. That that was very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. My pleasure. Um, so uh, this episode will be released before the beginning of uh, Ramadan, mm -hmm. which is set for April 13th. Am I correct? I think April so. 13th, that's right. Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. And can you explain what Ramadan is for our listeners who might be unfamiliar with this uh, very sure. special uh, holy holiday? Or not holiday, sorry. Sure. I, you know what I mean. <laughs> so Ramadan is a month, right? Yes, a month. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, its significance is uh, twofold. Number one is that this month is the month where uh, every day of this month and the Muslims fast, the able-bodied Muslims we're not sick, we're not young, you know, we're not old, uh, not chronically ill. Anybody who's excluded is excluded because of those reasons. Uh, health concerns, they're excluded as well. But somebody who is able-bodied and healthy, uh, they are, are to fast from dawn to sunset. And fasting is you're not eating, you're not drinking, uh, you're not engaged in, uh, in any uh, sexual activity either in those hours. And you're in a higher state of morality, so you're not uh, you're not supposed to be profane anyway. But in those hours, you're especially cautious of your conduct. So that takes place every day 
for uh, 29 or 30 days because the lunar month could be 29 or 30 days, um, depending on how the moon is. Uh, and that uh, is the month of Ramadan, right? So that's the first significance of it. It's a the whole community is doing this. When you Im imagine that, uh, or if you try to imagine that, it's like everybody's schedules and lives are turned upside down for a month because the time you're eating, the time you are uh, not eating, like lunch hour is gone, dinner has been shifted all the way down to the night. Uh, you're waking up really early to have the breakfast or pre-fasting meal. Uh, you're going to the mosque more to pray and meet people. It's a very different reality. Uh, so that's one part of what makes it very special. The other part of what makes it special is that Ramadan is a time or the month historically when uh, the uh, Quran's revelation you know, started. That was the first instance. So like you can say Ramadan is the month where it all began for the Muslims, uh, you know, with the Prophet receiving the first revelation and then uh, going on from there. So it has a historical significance as well uh, for us. So it's a very big, uh, you know, time of the year, a time of the year we all look forward to, even though it seems like it's really hard and everybody's a little, you know, cautious and a little worried going into Ramadan. How am I going to do without my morning coffee, right? <laughs> and my afternoon coffee. But we all adapt. And that's the part that always people find in themselves that they find strength within themselves in Ramadan that they didn't realize they had. Definitely true. And it always fascinated me, you know, when mm. I've had friends that I have friends that um, do are Muslim and have shared their stories. And I find it like, wow, that you do adapt. And there's a lot of strength mm. that is found during that process, like you said. Um, so finally, uh, my last question for you is, what do you think London can be and how can we get there together? I think London uh, can be like this uh, beautiful city, uh, this, this uh, place of uh, diverse people uh, of diverse backgrounds, all with, you know, things that are common and also things that are different. Uh, but what's common is what, you know, we celebrate what's common and we also celebrate what's different. We celebrate both things. I think London can be that. I think London is unique because uh, we have a, uh, you know, we have a established um, community here, not just Muslims, but like uh, at large, it's not a community in flux. Uh, for example, like in the GTA, Milton is, as an example, it's a, 10 years ago, it was nothing. It was like a farmland. That was like all houses. It's a place of flux, right? Uh, here, of you have new construction and whatnot, but the, it's a settled community that's expanding. Uh, and and that's a, it's a beautiful thing because there's a base to build off of. I think London can be a place of us, uh, you know, as, as us as Londoners, uh, finding like representing that resiliency that we all show individually in our homes in our spaces in our schools uh like london could represent that the way we are for example with covid numbers right the, the like this this is a city that's really kept it under really good control uh the way you know we're responding to the stay-at-home orders as a community. These are very encouraging signs of resiliency, of a community really 
uh, sacrificing for the greater cause. So I feel there's a lot that we have here uh, that's unique, that's special. And uh, I really hope and pray that we can see that uh, potential come to fruition. I agree with you. Definitely um, the COVID-19 outbreak um, and this whole year, what we've learned from our community is how we've been able to reorganize ourselves Mm -hmm. and uh, help each other out. And I couldn't agree with you more. And I think um, having you and people like you in our community and the London Muslim Mosque helps bring that vibrancy to our community as well, you know, and having other cultures uh, practicing their traditions, religious traditions, all of that is very important for creating a, a strong and vibrant community. So, Arich, thank you so much for your time. It's been so nice speaking with you and learning more about uh, the Muslim faith and um, in your, you know, journey, you know, coming from mm-hmm. Pakistan to Mississauga and the impact that you're having on a lot of people, including young young minds and young students. So keep doing the great work you're doing. And I'm really glad that you've been able to be a part of our podcast. And I look forward to bringing you back again, um, because I think there is a lot of learning uh, to be had with you. So thank you. Absolutely. It was my pleasure to be here. It was an honor for me to be here with you all. And uh, and, and uh, I hope to be back. And, and uh, it was really very, very, uh, very gratifying for me to be part of this conversation. Thank you. And same for us. Okay. All the best to you. Take care. You too. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of What London Can Be. Look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn how to subscribe to this podcast and for more information about today's guest, visit us at lcf.on.ca slash what London can be. If you like this podcast, tell a friend and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find links on our website. Thank you again for joining us.